This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. After our Build Back Better episode, we find it important to reflect back to our history of U.S. immigration and how it affects sentiments on migration today. Specifically, U.S.'s involvement in immigration restrictions, namely in historically overlooked areas such as Hawaii and Cuba, the precedents established, and how we can move forward today. In order to know where we're going, we have to know where we have been. And to help me navigate this journey is historian, professor of St. Olaf College, and former Dartmouth fellow, Kent Weber. Pleasure to have you on. Hi, Ian. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. I appreciate it. So your dissertation on Chinese exclusion and U.S. empire in Cuba and Hawaii takes a broad look at the intersecting histories of migration, immigration law, and empire. We've covered the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act in previous episodes, but U.S. colony building in island territories such as Hawaii and Cuba is a new area for the podcast. So I'm asking you, where should we start? Wow, what a, what a great question for a historian, where to start. Um, you know, we could choose many places. It might be a good idea to start in 1882 <laughs> with the passage of some of the original laws to um, restrict the migration and entry of Chinese folks into the United States. Migration, who is moving and why are, are caused and affected right multiply across space. One thing that's really interesting about the passage of um, that 1882 act is actually how it was received in Hawaii at that time. Okay. Now, Hawaii, like Cuba, was very involved in networks of Chinese labor migrations uh, for work on agricultural plantations, producing things like sugar, coffee, um, fruit, you know, certain when you think of Hawaii, you might think of pineapples, um, but also things like rice and nuts, industries that in both locations were important parts of their economic makeup. Uh, interestingly, the Sugar Planners Association of Hawaii actually were very nervous about the passing of the Chinese Exclusion Act in the United States. At that time, the West Coast was a major agricultural outlet for production in Hawaii. And they were concerned whether or not a continued reliance on Chinese labor would affect some of their economic and political relationships with the United States. Right. Um, and with the passage, I mean, it had a high Chinese population during that time, you know, in, in the 1800s and obviously 1900s as well. And that would destabilize the economies. And that's what, you know, Hawaii was looking at. So was there any uh, steps that they took to combat this, talk to the government and say that, hey, this is a need, you know, our, our immigrant population is a valued uh, part of our economy. Yeah, uh, you know, at this moment, the makeup of Hawaii was quite diverse. Uh, you have a, a nation state of native Hawaiians. Um, there's a constitutional monarchy, uh, a parliamentary style system of government there that is made up of interests of many different folks from uh, native Hawaiians to uh, more recently arrived Euro-American folks, maybe from the United States or from Europe. Um, certainly American folks, British folks were there as missionaries, 
but also became influential within national politics in Hawaii, especially those people who were coming from the planter class. Over time, these folks had gained a fair amount of economic power and came to dominate the agricultural industry there. And then you had, you know, middling working class folks of various backgrounds, and they all sort of felt differently about questions of immigration and what they thought immigration policies would do for a future in Hawaii. So there, there were many competing points of view. Um, some of those politically influential uh, planters who were mostly Euro-Americans relied on Chinese labor uh, for their wealth and for, for you know, the, the production in their industries. So while they may have been open to ideas about restricting migration, ultimately it was something that they relied upon. But uh, working class folks and um, certainly a few people from missionary backgrounds in Hawaii, um, again, white folks, became very opposed to Chinese migration and some of their ideas- They're taking our jobs. Right, exactly, exactly. That's <laughs> right. exactly the line. Um, so much so, in fact, that there was a Hawaiian working men's party that was modeled off of the California Working Men's Party, which of course was very influential in California at this time in advocating for Chinese exclusion. So it's a little harder in Hawaii to find a clear coherence between these groups because there's so much crossover and people uh, that we might assume are in the same sort of category actually can be on conflicting sides. But in the, in the 1870s, uh, a prominent son of a missionary family, Walter Murray Gibson, came to prominence in the Hawaiian government. And he was the, uh, the owner and editor of the uh, newspaper, the uh, Pacific Commercial Advertiser, which is really the media outlet for a predominantly white audience in Hawaii. And um, Walter Murray Gibson ran numerous news stories and sensational stories about the Chinese threat in Hawaii and this question about Chinese migration to the future of Hawaii, asking very similar questions as those that we might find in the United States in this time about whether Hawaii would become an Asiatic nation or something else, uh, a white nation perhaps, but you know maybe not exactly a native Hawaiian nation, uh, which folks were also concerned about too. And so, some of those questions about the future of Hawaii play very significantly into conversations about whether or not uh, Hawaii would or even should eventually become a part of the United States. And that conversation is something that's happening on both sides of the Pacific, both within Hawaii and among folks in the United States as well. That's very interesting because Hawaii is a particular location where you, at that time, and I guess even now, you have three distinct demographics. You have the native Hawaiians who've lived there since the beginning. The white settlers, they come over and they take over. The, the power structure is, is there. And once that opens up to, you know, larger America, you have immigration. So you have Chinese immigration. So it's three main power structures that is operating on this one island. And I kind of want to get into that conversation a, a little bit because you say the exclusion laws offered an adaptable tool to define race and space across U.S. empire. 
that work to constitute new American imperial borders. So from a, a big level, uh, thinking about the U.S. Uh, government's intentions and how they use the exclusion laws as, as a tool to define race in America. Yeah, um, absolutely. Now, of course, I think the listeners of your podcast are you know, very open to thinking uh, in expansive ways about immigration, immigration law and policy. You know, we tend to frame immigration as a kind of personal or individual kind of topic or issue uh, where, you know, people come to the United States and that is right, a standard narrative of movement, but also the United States comes to people, right? And therefore its laws also do too. And, you know, Hawaii is a great example of how that happens. So restrictions do start put in place uh, in the 1880s, formal systems of entry and exit, identifying documents, which are not quite US Chinese exclusion-esque, but there's a, a trajectory that you can see in the historical record. And then finally, in the early 1890s, there is a, a local uprising in Honolulu of white planters that removes the Hawaiian monarchy from power. And at that point creates a republic uh, with many of those individuals in key uh, positions of leadership. And the US immediately recognizes this republic as the de facto government of Hawaii. And this paves the way for annexation to take place. So at that time, the new leaders of this uh, minority controlled government in Hawaii begin to enact a series of rules to restrict and regulate Chinese migration more closely in line with the US Chinese exclusion laws. And in private conversations between uh, the Republic of Hawaii, say Foreign Secretary uh, Henry Cooper and the US Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, who was a, a notorious uh, imperialist, really pro US empire. Um, there's private conversations between them talking about the importance of regulating and quote unquote, solving Hawaii's Chinese problem to its future as part of the United States. So the Republic of Hawaii government creates this Chinese bureau to more thoroughly regulate and surveil Chinese migrants in Hawaii. So that when annexation does occur, there is a kind of infrastructure in place for the enforcement of the US Chinese exclusion laws. Now, interestingly, when Hawaii is annexed, the provisions for annexation include the extension of the Chinese exclusion laws to Hawaii to take effect immediately. Now, at that moment, there are not any other US federal laws that are immediately put into effect in the Hawaiian islands. It's just the Chinese exclusion laws. And so annexation formally takes place in July of 1898, but it is actually two more years until Hawaii is organized as a US territory with its own territorial government. And so the major institution of US law operating in that moment in, in that space of time, that to your trunk, is the US Chinese exclusion laws. And the enforcement of those creates uh, what I describe as, as a change, uh, a chain of bureaucratic change, which works to incorporate 
Hawaii into the United States. For example, one thing that happens really early on is an experienced Chinese inspector uh, from New Orleans is moved to Honolulu. Uh, his name was Joshua Brown. And similar to how the Republic of Hawaii created a, a Chinese bureau, within the US Immigration Service, there were special officers who were dedicated to the enforcement of the Chinese exclusion laws. And those folks were called Chinese inspectors. So Inspector Brown was one of these people. And he is sent to Honolulu with the mission of bringing the system of Hawaiian immigration control, particularly around Chinese exclusion, into line with the US federal system. And so the chain reaction that takes place is all of a sudden, the customs officials in Hawaii, for example, are charged by Brown with enforcing the US Chinese exclusion laws. So these folks become immigration inspectors almost overnight. Furthermore, the previous system of regulating Chinese migration essentially gets canceled. And there are several situations where people who were leaving the Hawaiian islands for whatever reason, maybe to travel, maybe to go home and visit family in China, have these travel documents that were issued by the Republic of Hawaii, which now have become null and void. So when they return to the Hawaiian islands, they're told that they cannot enter because they don't have appropriate travel documents. And perhaps they also otherwise don't meet the requirements of the US Chinese exclusion laws. They're not merchants or diplomats or teachers or tourists. They don't fit these exempt categories that the laws provide. Uh, perhaps they don't have the financial standing to otherwise enter or re-enter Hawaii as laborers. So you get hundreds of people who are, who are stuck in transit. Right, um, and you mentioned the geopolitical formation that was uh, being created and Hawaii being one of those locations where U.S. employed their immigration and geopolitical mandates or ideas or intentions. I, I kind of want to uh, get into that mindset. If we would know what that mindset was of the U.S. government at the time, why they were dictating, okay, some people are allowed to come to the U.S. and others are, are not. And for what reasons? What in their minds were they trying to create the U.S., I guess, manifest destiny? What was in <laughs> their mind of what they were trying to create through these exclusions? Sure. Um, I would say it's also important to note that uh, there, there is an important difference uh, within Chinese exclusion in Hawaii. Uh, versus the continental U.S. And that is for any folks who want to travel from Hawaii to the continental U.S., that is treated as a kind of foreign travel. So they actually have to go through the exclusion process again, right? Like the continental U.S. and Hawaii are separated in this way. There's a, a couple of reasons for why this is the case. The U.S. government is very conscious of not wanting to create any situations where its new territories can become stepping stones for unwanted migration to the continental United States. So this explains why you know, Hawaii is cut off from, from the continental US in this way. And that's true for all the other territories as well. 
Now within Hawaii, the, the reasons for exclusion are very much intertwined with larger colonial projects. So the rhetoric um, around annexation and Chinese exclusion is very strong in terms of, right, the goal of this is to turn Hawaii into a place of white settlement as opposed to Asian settlement. You know, this, there's this yellow peril narrative which is very strong, very similar to the continental US. And uh, in terms of programs and policy, this becomes matched with different sorts of migration programs that are created to encourage and facilitate both white US and European migration and settlement in Hawaii. Native Hawaiians are also not absent right, from this narrative. It's important to think about the ways in which they're also affected by these sorts of various programs. So once the territory of Hawaii is organized and it's formally a part of the United States, you know, in this way that geopolitical formation is there, those lands that were controlled by the Hawaiian crown uh, first and then the Republic of Hawaii government go to the federal government and are used uh, actually to, to facilitate the settlement of folks from the continental US and from Europe in Hawaii. So those lands that were native Hawaiian lands are now becoming part of a program to also remove them from those lands by giving them to other people. And so the exclusion laws function as, as a foil to those sorts of programs in this debate about what the racial future of Hawaii will be, which is very much also then you know a comment on what the the political and geopolitical future of Hawaii is going to be. Right. No, that's really fascinating. I, I don't know, just in my mind, I was thinking of America on one side, Asia on another side, and Hawaii is like in the middle and it's like a tug of war <laughs> <laughs> go, go, going back and forth and the U.S. trying to establish its uh, ideals at the time of what would be the ideal of U.S. And they push that through their laws. So that's definitely new information. And, and um, if we have time, I, I want to transition to Cuba because that's another territory that U.S. has had its interest in. And you, you bring up the Trisconia Immigration Station, which was like the Cuba's Ellis Island. So it, it was created by the U.S. military as an immigrant processing center. Could you tell us more about its inceptions and what it was used for? Yeah. So Cuba represents a, another uh, node, I guess, in, in my research on Chinese exclusion. So the Chinese exclusion laws were also extended to Cuba as they were to Hawaii, though that happened through quite a different process. Um, and what time the, period was this? So this is around the same time period. Um, so after the Spanish-American War was also in 1898 when Hawaii was annexed, uh, the U.S. military takes possession of Cuba and sets up an occupation government until Cuba becomes an independent country in 1902. So the US military embarks on, according to some of the folks involved there at that time, was this sort of new experience of governing territory overseas. That also includes setting up immigration regulations and rules. So the US military maintained a core of customs collectors in Cuba 
who acted as immigration officials. And they really created the infrastructure that an independent Cuba would inherit to carry out immigration control and processing. Now, at this time, the exclusion laws weren't there. The Chinese exclusion laws are, are extended to Cuba in a military order about five days before this military occupation ends in May 1902. The Triscornia immigration facility becomes the major site where the Chinese exclusion laws are, are enforced and negotiated. So this is a facility uh, in the harbor of Havana that was, it was originally a Spanish barracks, uh, a military fort, which was then possessed by the US military during the occupation and turned into a, a immigration um, processing facility. And folks referred to it as the Ellis Island of Cuba, um, that this building and what was going on there represented, you know, the most kind of modern and scientific approach to processing immigrants and doing so, um, right, having this kind of facility and running it was also a mark itself of modernity and uh, of Cuba's right, rightful place within a modern family of nations uh, upon its independence. Uh, so over the course of that first US occupation, um, eventually Chinese entry into Cuba uh, gets restricted to Havana only. So folks have to enter through Havana, which means that they will go through the Triscornia Immigration Station, um, which many other folks ended up going through as well, whether they were coming from places in Spain or um, even the Middle East or across the Americas. And at least during the US occupation, a major point of this processing station was to ensure public health. So sanitation rules and regulations were very important, whether that was controlling uh, yellow fever or medically screening uh, folks who were interested in coming into Cuba. And of course, the, these were very common practices in the United States at the time too. But here there's a recreation of really US practices and expectations for things like health uh, and the reproduction of ideas about what constitutes right health, right? Who is healthy? What does a healthy person look like? Yeah, because I was going to ask, was this like legitimate justifications? Or was it the trite explanation of, oh, this is because of national security? You know, <laughs> I was like, this is through national, for national security. That's why we're closing down the borders. Was it a mix or both? Sure. It's, yeah. it's, it, it, it is very much both. Um, but, you know, on, on the medical side of things, um, you know, prevailing medical knowledge and practice at the time could very easily recreate. Uh, ideas or stereotypes about right different bodies or races and signal right potentially their inferiority. Who's dirty um, and who's say, not? Yeah. You know, take right who's dirty and who's not. And in terms of enforcing Chinese exclusion, we only have to look towards El, uh, towards Angel Island um, off the coast of San Francisco as this historical example of where right medical examinations became such 
an important cog in creating ideas about the Chinese body, right? Negative notions of Chineseness. That was something that uh, was, of course, going on at Triscornia as well. First, through the reproduction of these ideas from a U.S. point of view, right? This is a facility constructed by the U.S. military with the notions and ideas that those Americans had, which then eventually ends up in the hands of a new Cuban nation who also has its own visions of what Cuba will or or should be for its future. But it did adopt some um, of those ideals, the, the U.S. ideals, right? About the, right, absolutely. The, the immigrants. Now, for Cuba, how has those exclusion laws affected its economy? Why were people moving to Cuba in the first place? What was the economy happening there at that time that would attract individuals to come? Sure. So in, in Cuba at that time, um, well, after the Spanish-American War, Cuba was very devastated. Um, Cubans had been in some form or another fighting for independence from the Spanish Empire for about 30 years. So when the U.S. military occupies Cuba initially, they're occupying a country that has been devastated by decades of conflict. So to some extent, you have depopulation, you have devastation in terms of infrastructure, in terms of economic production. You know, migration programs are put into place to rebuild. More than anything else, they need bodies to help get things back on track. Certainly, uh, labor migrants from neighboring Caribbean countries play a really important role in that. But quite early on in the Republic of Cuba, uh, I think in, in, in 1906, uh, a kind of white colonization plan is created with this idea that, you know, we might be interested in acquiring short-term laborers nearby, but ultimately, if we're going to be right in our eyes a modern nation, then we really need to look towards Spain or, to, or towards other countries where we can get what we think are right, the best migrants who will really elevate us in terms of our economy, in terms of our culture. Um, so these ideas of modernity are, are really strongly intertwined with what the desires are to bring those things to fruition. And of course, just like in, in Hawaii, the results of that are incredibly mixed and never really, you know, fully come to fruition. Um, but the, those impulses and ideas are there. Hmm. Right. And it just shows how pervasive these ideals and occupation was, you know, that it, it, it spread out to many different territories and, and colonies and island nations. So uh, th this is interesting because we, we only hear about the Chinese exclusion uh, in the continental U.S., Mostly, that's that's really the the narrative and the story, and we know about the Exclusion Act of 1882. But you know, reading your stuff and, and learning about your particular focus, I'm like, oh wow, it makes sense. It makes a logical sense. But yeah, how it spread out to Hawaii, how it spread out to uh, Puerto Rico and Cuba and, and the Philippines, and that was you know, the U.S. enforcing 
its ideal of what the U.S. should be and should look like and, and the demographics there. And it spread out through all of its territories. I think that's a, an important note to take away. Absolutely. And you know, ultimately, it requires then that all the space in between also has to be regulated and surveilled, right? And that just really augments the power of the state across large spaces. You know, something, something that we didn't get a chance to really touch on, but I think it's important too, is um, kind of indirect control that the U.S. ended up having in Cuba also created a lot of space for Chinese folks there and um, Chinese diplomats, you know, representatives of, of the Chinese state to also influence how the exclusion laws were operating. So there were really experienced and skilled Chinese consuls, uh, for example, in Havana, who were able to work closely with their Cuban counterparts to have a large degree of control over the exclusion system. An example like that also demonstrates how, while you know, U.S. imperial growth created you know, systems of power that could be quite hard to overcome, you know, the exclusion laws themselves, for example. Uh, There's still that, a sense of autonomy. Yeah, you know, that power is also not completely totalizing either. And folks also, you know, adapted, adapted those things for their own purposes. So again, there isn't, it's not only a one directional story, but I, I do think nonetheless, it makes us think about immigration differently as, as a thing which has a much wider field of, of consequence and influences. Right. The, the implications to that. Thank you so much, Kent, for your time. I, I appreciate the work that you do as a historian. I might have to drop by in one of the classes and say Olaf <laughs> uh, because you, you're a great chat. So I appreciate your time. Well, thank you. And please do stop by. <laughs> Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.